Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is, pod.com. We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them. We're talking about life and life to stream right to you from the microphone right to your home, dude. Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo, because there it is. Welcome to the There It Is podcast, a comedy podcast to help you find your inspiration. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Thanks so much for listening. We have a great guest today. It's performer and Brooklyn Comedy Collective artistic director, Philip Markle, also known as Philip Sparkle, if you follow his comedy. But first, we have a little note for people who listen to the podcast on Stitcher, You've probably already heard that the Stitcher app is going away today because SiriusXM is discontinuing Stitcher. Apparently, later in the year, they'll be launching a new app. But in the meantime, you can listen to us wherever you get podcasts. That isn't Stitcher. So go check those other options out. Thank you for listening. Also, we are publishing our Comedy Festival submission post on our website, thereitispod.com, this Thursday, so be on the lookout for that. That'll cover any comedy festival that has open submissions in the month of September. Okay, on to today's guest. What a great conversation we have for you today. If you are an improviser, you gotta listen to this one until the end because Philip shares a ton of really great improv theory that I think will open up your mind if you're feeling stuck. And I also felt like I had a lot more permission to do certain things that you're told not to do listening to him. So I hope you get that from him as well. I absolutely love this talk. So let's get right to it. Here's my chat with Philip Markle. I'm so excited to talk to you about all this stuff, this cool stuff that you have done and you are currently doing. First off, though, let's go back to your origin story. Did you grow up in San Francisco? I grew up in the North Bay and naturally, you know, I was bit by a spider at age 12 (laughs) and my uncle tragically died and then I became an improv comedian. (laughs) Yep, that's your origin story. (laughs) Yeah. I know that you did go to Northwestern where every great comedian goes to college. There's so many comedians who went to Northwestern. It's funny because a lot of the comedians I know in the scene currently, there's only like a handful from Northwestern. Most, it's pretty rare. At this point, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. But you went to Northwestern. Did you do improv at Northwestern? Um, I was actually turned down from every improv thing I auditioned for at Northwestern, which, you know, gave me a nice uh, revenge story, Mm -hmm. revenge narrative. I did do an improvisational children's group called uh, Griffin's Tale, which rocked my world. Griffin's Tale was about taking stories that kids wrote and adapting them through improv into performances for the kids. And I loved that. But yeah, it's, I didn't get into any long form or short form or sketch comedy Northwestern. Oh, okay. Did Were you performing before that? I, you're, you're musically talented. So were you doing music before Northwestern? Yeah, I mean, I was a classical pianist. My mother made me mother made me do my scales every day. Uh-huh. I eventually gave that up by the time I got to college, but I could accompany and I could write my own music. Mm-hmm. So I was a composer and then I was an actor. I, I went to Northwestern for theater, was doing the old acting track, you know, trying mm-hmm. to be, you know, doing Chekhov and learning all this stuff that I was far too young to appreciate. <laughs> and then I graduated from that, you know, wanting to be an actor. Ah, gotcha. Not even do comedy, but um, I was in a bunch of uh, kind of shit shows after, you know, doing really great work. Like you go from doing great work in college to being like murdered gay number two on Chicago Fire, mm-hmm. auditioning for that or some Long John's commercial or a play where, you know, it was just garbage. And I was like, if you can't take the good with the bad, I'm doing this play eight nights a week or eight, eight shows a week. And I I really don't enjoy this. Like, mm. I don't feel it was creative. I, that's why I got into improv was I wanted to be both a writer and a performer and improv combined them both at the same time. Interesting. And you were in Chicago, as you you alluded to. And yes. there you went to all the places there. I.O., Second City, The Annoyance, where you really dug in. Yeah, The Annoyance was a place where I could let my freak flag fly. I trained at The Annoyance in I.O. And then I did 
cruise ships for Second City, which was mm-hmm. a whole shebang. <laughs> very mm-hmm. interesting stories on that. But the annoyance was like really my heart and where I felt very accepted as a weird, queer, freak improviser. Mm-hmm. Didn't blend in with the rest of the homogeny at the scene at the time. I hear you. Yeah, and doing to- like the, the tours... <laughs> That you get so many hours in, you get so much time in with that. And like you said, there's so many crazy stories. What are some of those stories? And and also, what did you learn about improv going through that experience? Well, I, I have, I've written about the stories in a sort of anonymous context in a medium post called The Shit from Hell. <laughs> okay. I, don't, I don't think I should name any, I ever you know, specify it because I, I I prefer to keep it anonymous. But yeah, mm-hmm. it was really hard. It was a hard experience. I was performing 15 shows a week, you know, for a lot of racist Republicans porting out of Miami that there'd be two mm-hmm. guys on stage even. And they'd be like, gay, as a suggestion every time. And yeah. there's sort of like two ways you can approach that. One is to fight back and the other is to sort of cheekily, you know, teach them a thing or two in a way that doesn't alienate the audience. But I'd like, we get gay as a suggestion. I remember intentionally trying to do like the most banal banal scene of all time like honey do you think we should get store brand paper towels this time like <laughs> and then they would they, they would chuckle and be like oh my god gays shop too like you know, it's not just oh, like wow. old dildos and you know sex gloves so i enjoyed that that the it was a really good a lot of practice doing sketch family friendly improv you know uh r-rated improv and, and so i think it was a really good learning thing but it was hard to be isolated that way mm. intense but i would never do it again yeah i bet I mean, I'm I'm sorry you had that experience because people be uh, trash, right? Okay. But, I mean, I also had a lot of good times and I got a lot of content out of it. So whenever something's yeah. really bad and just think of the stories, think of the content, think of the book, the David Sedaris thing I'll eventually create, you know? Yeah. I want to talk some more about your time in Chicago before you got to New York. So you mentioned that you were at the Annoyance and and really felt at home there and you started working there a good bit. What was that experience like? learning improv and then becoming an instructor and then becoming a director. Did you do directing at The Annoyance before you moved to New York? I was, I mean, I was directing in capacities outside The Annoyance and I was close with Mick and Jen and that they knew that I was doing all these things. I was mostly a performer and a writer at The Annoyance. I put up my one-man show there for the first time. That was a really great experience. And then eventually I decided to move to New York and I took that show that I developed at The Annoyance to the Fringe in New York. And then I sort of pitched them. I was like, you know, I was a teacher outside of it. I was like, what if I helped launch classes to start for the Annoyance in New York? And they said yes. And they entrusted me with that responsibility, which was awesome. And then that eventually became a theater where a lot of Chicago transplants, that some of whom I known and just were so awesome, met the really cool crew that was invested in a new wicked theater like the Annoyance underground a jazz club literally beneath a jazz club is where where it would be like jazz music as people were screaming it was really diy and fun was that show you referenced sparkle hour yes okay i mean that's what i'm saying there's so much that you have done it's so hard to i fear we won't be able to really delve into how you developed all of them because there's there's not enough time in an hour to talk about how you dug in to get into all of those things. But what did Sparkle Hour mean for you? Well, I think so to to organize my life, it's like I'm Philip Markle and I'm Philip Sparkle. Philip Markle is the business guy, the Capricorn, the person that can build things and, you know, teach and all that. And Philip Sparkle is me on stage, which is this Mm -hmm. ball of, I think Mick once described me as a chicken with a glitter gun on cocaine with its head cut off. I like to think I'm not quite so twinky chaotic these days, but that was part and parcel. And the Sparkle Hour was also about dealing with my coming out story, which wasn't easy. It was like a lot of uh, vulnerability and, and, and sanity and mixing it with fantastical elements, like how much I love Lord of the Rings and these, you know, it was a very fantastical show with original music that I wrote. And I just think anyone should go through the challenge with a great director. Jen Ellison directed it and whipped my ass into shape of like, what do you have to say that nobody can say in the way that you say it? And mm-hmm. the more personal it is, the more universal it is. So that was a huge learning experience of like how to shape my voice as a comedian and something I recommend. I mean, I am recommending everyone do a solo show and there are a lot of crappy solo shows out there, but it doesn't matter if like it is like, it's still the best thing you can do as an artist to put your foot out there, to put your your money where your mouth is, I think. I oh, I totally it. agree. Yeah, totally agree. 
and it can't be great and a lot of times until it's been a crappy show there are lots of shows where the original thing that somebody put up wasn't good they realized it's not good and they worked on it they got it better so yeah i totally agree go out there put put on the show and try to tell i love that telling a story the way you can tell it it's your story and it can only be told the way you can tell it yeah there's an argument that every story has been said right but like Mm -hmm. even if your story is similar to archetypes like no one has your details no one has the way that you share it right And like what you said about making mistakes look we teach corporate improv now i teach it all the time it's like getting corporations even like uh teaching at google or the new york times to be like more fluid and to appreciate that failure is the way to get better yeah. You know, your great shows you don't get better at. It's the ones where you eat shit on stage. Right. <laughs> yeah. And those are the ones where you're stretching. And that's maybe why you ate shit. It's because you're really going for something and then you woofed it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sometimes it's also just, an, especially with improv, like the best improvisers in the world does 10 scenes, you know, one of them's going to be shit. Yeah. It, it's just part and parcel. And you learn to not have your ego be like, oh my God, I'm a failure and be more like, wow, okay, I haven't eaten shit in a while. This was instructive. Oh, yeah, that's what that feels like. Okay, cool. And I always have a rule. You can think about the show for 10, an improv show. You can think about it for 10 minutes afterwards or one drink and then poof, gone. Mm-hmm. Snake, that, snake that eats its own tail. Do not think about it anymore. Different with scripted stuff because you might want to rewrite or rework it right. or rehearse, but like improv You're never going to do that be, improv show again. Yeah. It's ephemeral. Yeah. Move on, honey. Right. I love that. Yeah. Billy Merritt, when he was on the podcast, said something similar. He said, after the show, however long it takes you to get home, that's the full amount of time you get to talk about that show and and yeah. how it how bad it went or whatever. But of course, if you have a forty five minute subway train ride home, don't spend maybe forty five minutes thinking about that show. I do like the you get a drink. Yeah, <laughs> you if you drink. drink. The yeah. kids these days, you know, they don't drink. I love it. Yeah, I mean they're they're doing the dissoir, the non alcoholic stuff. So and ketamine, lots of ketamine. <laughs> kids be safe out there so and also another thing you did in chicago is a huge show baby wants candy you were part of that yeah i guess it with them a bunch and they now currently have a monthly run at bcc which you know i don't participate so much in the one out here they have the new york cast and i'm running the whole damn thing but it's really cool to have baby at the brooklyn comedy collective my current theater Mm -hmm. in a strong capacity i want to delve into when you found your voice because you you mentioned how Nick McNapier described you you said that you really opened up at Annoyance Theater because it was where you were allowed you felt really like you could let your freak flag fly so Mm -hmm. when you were there when you were doing all these shows what did you discover about your voice I mean I discovered a, I had great teachers. You know, Mick was one of the greatest teachers I've ever had. Susan Messing, shout out. I mean, there were so many great teachers there that really wanted to not mold me into an archetype of a mm. performer, but to help me find, like, to be skeptical, to say, like, okay, that worked for me, that didn't work for me. Through trial and error, what do I believe in is my artistic process. And I was young, you know, I didn't know. There were so many things I didn't know. And I guess the way you're, you're like, what was my voice? It was this feeling and wanting to bring back the whimsy of feeling that jadedness and irony and people getting rusted and bitter was like the antidote to that was newness and and a feeling of like again this is a very twinky expression but like you know a whimsy bomb on stage and that never meant that it wasn't tempered with vulnerability or truth or sadness like grief was just as important and in my current version of sparkle hour like i really go on cuckoo train and get the you know, dance numbers, drag, singing big. But then I try at the end of the show after I've gotten the audience to trust me to be real about something in my life that I've been going through, which I think is the way to do it. You know, it's like no one can argue with vulnerability. And that vulnerability was as much important to my voice as the glitter gun. Mm, I love that no one can argue with vulnerability. Yeah, I mean, people could be not open to it yet like they might be like oh you're hitting me with your mother's death one minute into your show i'm not ready for that but they can't argue that you just were vulnerable right um but the way you do it is is important in in crafting an experience where the audience gets invested in you 
But yeah, like people can argue if that was funny or not. They'll laugh if they think it's funny. But vulnerability is like a trump card and that like you sharing something without affectation that is real, you you feel courageous enough to share. It can't be argued with. It is it is a pure yeah. thing. Yeah, I love that. I hadn't heard that perspective before on vulnerability. I think the reason part of the reason it's hitting me is that I do think we live in this world where people do want to argue a lot, regardless of what it is you're paying attention to. It could be movies. It could be comedy. It could be politics. You know, it could be sports. It could be anything. And people are debating constantly. But you don't hear people having debates over whether or not something that was vulnerable was actually vulnerable. You don't hear people argue with what was shared when something is shared vulnerably. And that is essentially what we're trying to get to as artists is to be vulnerable, whether that is sharing personal experience that is hard to share or sharing a display of genuine human emotion. Like that is what we're trying to get to. Yeah. You have been doing this with your improv, with your Sparkle Hour, with a lot of your shows that you've been putting up. You were trying to get to a vulnerable place. Is that something yeah. that means a lot to you? Yeah, especially because, you know, irony is king mm -hmm. in 2023. And there are plenty of shows that are fantastic that have no vulnerability. So I'm not saying mm -hmm. like, like Kate yeah. by Kate Berlant was literally a mock. It mocked the whole idea of being vulnerable on stage in a way that was like, that was the object of uh, ridicule. And I love <laughs> nice. that show. Mm -hmm. But that is one type of show. And ultimately, like vulnerability is also not only a performance worthy or a writing worthy thing. It is uh, like I now feel like I'm a better leader because I can very much own up to all the shit that I fucked up in so mm -hmm. many ways, made so many mistakes and was originally defensive about those mistakes. But now feel like, yeah, I'm not that person anymore, but I'm also not going to hide the fact that I had a lot to learn. And I don't try to pretend things I think these days as I don't try to pretend when I don't know how to act. And I'm more, I'm more like very, I want to apologize when I objectively have crossed someone's line. So the vulnerability extends into how I try to run my business, my theater. Yeah. So before you get to New York and I, you know, I mentioned the baby wants candy, which is musical, musical, improv. musical improv. And you also go on to do an off Broadway musical a blank. When did musical improv become a part of your improv? Was How early did you get into that? I mean, I was singing without a piano player when I was in class shows at I.O. And the, to the point where they had to be like, dude, there's no piano player. Stop it. You're just like breaking out into song for no fucking reason. <laughs> and I, I think I was into it because I did musical theater in college in Northwestern. And I loved singing and I loved the idea of like, the challenge of musical improv is the most impressive, hard thing in the fucking world to make up a musical on the spot. And I loved using my talents. And so I had my own musical improv show, which was called Happy Karaoke Fun Time. Now it's called Jukebox. Still do it 10 years later. And it, it's, it, it blows people's minds. And it's really fun, but it's just really hard to get good at. Yeah. What do you feel is so difficult about getting good at musical improv? Well, anytime you add more form or more structure that has to be accomplished, like a musical has to tell a narrative, a compelling narrative with the protagonist, antagonist, et cetera. It has to have rising actions. Like mm -hmm. you're telling the story at the beginning, middle, and end. The actual way to sing in musical improv, you have to be able to know strong song structure. You have to know a, a tagline song versus a song with chorus, verses, and bridges. You have mm -hmm. to know what a verse is supposed to accomplish, a chorus how you can make it easy enough that everyone can glom on. And then what a bridge does in opposition, you have to have harmonies with the people and stay in tune with your band or your piano mm -hmm. player or your musicians. And you have to maybe at the end of the day, even fucking rhyme on the spot. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's really, really hard. And, um, and I believe the more, you know, baggage you put on an improviser's brain, the more it stifles their ability to play. That was a very annoying thing that I still teach and believe in these days myself of just like, Improv is at its best when it's free, when right. it's light. When so it don't feels think about like... the rules so much, yeah. Our festival at the BCC is called Fun and Dumb. <laughs> right. You know, we just wanted to, we don't want to treat it with the, the most fun and done way. But and, and so the best musical improv has a feeling of lightness because the people have worked the technique so hard that it's just natural to them. Mm -hmm. But it takes a lot of practice to get to the point where the technique is so ingrained that then you can be loose again. Yeah, it is a complicated thing. And I do agree that 
once you are putting a little extra structure on it, it's for an improviser's brain, it's going to be tough, especially when you're doing non-musical improv. And if you do anything plotty, you get noted on it, but now you're doing musical improv and you have to be plotty. <laughs> So it's like, oh, you okay, have to be plotty, but character driven, <laughs> right, character yeah. first. And you guys above all be present. You know, I've been in the middle of singing a song and something happens and I'll cut off my verse. I'll just mm -hmm. like, cause like what just happened is that glass just broke or whatever, you know, like there can be an artifice where it feels like people are like, I'm singing and I'm in my head. I'm just being robot on stage. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I'm roboting the chorus and it feels not very present. And so. I, I, first of all, I think everyone can try it. Everyone should do it. You don't have to be a good singer to do it, but it just requires, it's like learning the Herald, you know, the most complicated mm. version of math on stage and fucking improv, <laughs> which like, I think montages are just as satisfying to me personally as a Herald. But if you want to mm. do a Herald, you know, you have to get good enough at it where you can break it. You can forget it. You don't have to be attached to it. And it's just ingrained in you. And yeah. I respect people that go on that journey. Same thing with musical improv. And I think anyone can do it and shouldn't be intimidated. But girl, you know, I spent 10 years learning the classical piano. Like it takes a long time to develop <laughs> yeah. an instrument that way that has a lot of technique to it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I yeah. do agree that the more simple forms like a montage where it's just like runs of scenes or people are, you know, there's, there's not as much structure to it. It's just people making, doing scenes and then they're referencing previous things and doing new things. And it's, it doesn't have any, a, a strict structure like a herald does that is just as satisfying to watch i totally agree i always think like a herald is mostly for the improv nerds in the audience i'm like what yeah. about the bridge and tunnel crew that came in from jersey they're not going to be like wow that that second beat uh the <laughs> really heightened the game really <laughs> was a three-dimensional heightening move i didn't thematically expect it's like they're going to be like it was funny <laughs> uh, you know, no one's going to be like, oh, my God, you logically constructed a Rubik's Cube in that show with the form. Like, nobody gives a shit. They'll appreciate yeah. rhyming of, you know, like in, in film plots where things rhyme and there's callbacks mm -hmm. and there's patterns. Because we love, you know, good improv is a recycling ban. Bad improv is a trash ban. Or people are constantly you know, looking for something new. Mm. So they'll appreciate that. But I, I think, like, I love forms in so much as they can set up your particular team for what you want to work on and what you think you do well. But I do, I'm not, I don't believe in being a slave to them. It's also why I'm not such a huge fan of house teams because, mm. you know, me playing God, we have a couple of like house team type, type things at BCC, but they're really informal. And they're really just like people that have done a ton of shit with us that we feel like get the vibe and the style of BCC. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, it's like me trying to get six people who don't know each other maybe to play together on a team well like who am i to play god mm. i get you that know, the people that are going to play well together are, are friends mm -hmm. they'll naturally find each other so at bcc we're very much just like you pitch us your team mm -hmm. find your people and then get good together and then pitch us a group where everyone already is connected to each other and supports each other let's talk about the creation of bcc and your approach to it because it's an interesting topic especially in a place like New York. But first, let's talk about how it got started. And it got started because, as I mentioned earlier, you brought the annoyance to New York and you were executive directing it. And I believe, was it 2016 when the annoyance ended in New York? I think it ended in 2017. I, okay. I had stepped down as executive director and went on a trip to Bali to like, eat, pray, kill myself, figure out what I was going to do next in my life. And mm -hmm. I'd run it. I was really so happy with mm. what it had become. And it was just time for something new. Mm. Um, and then sadly, it like closed six months after that. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't in a position to know exactly what happened. But like, it just, it was really sad because a lot of people had found their home there. And I think people really wanted something new. And so after that, I continued to travel the world <laughs> and teach improv, which News alert is actually quite lonely. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Just to be teaching in fucking Stockholm or Bratislava. I taught improv in Bratislava where <laughs> I got food poisoning from a salad. Like that's what I remember most about Bratislava. Oh, and yeah, so I came back to New York and I talked to Annie Donnelly, who'd been the programming director at The Annoyance. And we we're like, well, what if we start our own thing? We have this community that's dying to stay together. And so I ended up founding it. And Annie was the first employee as the, like, the programming director. 
and we we sort of started this thing from the you know the community that had been in there plus new people that wanted to get involved with a brooklyn thing the only comedy theater in brooklyn right and it's been going strong it's kept trucking along ever since 2017 i moved here in 2017 and i Pretty quickly, like a month in, maybe not even a full month, started taking classes at the Magnet. And I wanted to check out shows at the Annoyance, but then it closed. And so I was bummed about that. But a buddy of mine from the Carolinas who moved up here started doing stuff at BCC. And I started hearing more and more about it and going to shows and checking stuff out. And I, I dig the vibe and the approach. First question, what is what was the heart behind starting it. We've kind of alluded to it. I, I imagine some of it has to do with annoyance, I imagine. Well, yeah, I was really happy. I was really excited for it to keep going and to continue doing shows there. And I was still ah. teaching there. So it was a huge bummer. And, and the BCC, I think I waited almost a year before we realized we were, we were missing something. Mm. That's something I will say about the annoyance. The annoyance was incredibly fucking funny. Some huge comedian that I admire, like came out of there, found their mm -hmm. voice there. It was it was amazing. Mm -hmm. um, but also as a testament to me being a 27 year old trying to launch this thing, there was some like, to be honest, like toxic behavior there. And, and in, in calling it a collective, the Brooklyn Comedy Collective, one of the main goals from the start was to have a non-hierarchical approach where nobody was cooler than anybody else, mm. which is harder to accomplish than it sounds because, you know, clicks happen and, yeah. you know, this idol but we were like no idolization and we also were the first comedy theater to pay performers as in to pay producers who put up shows with us and that was really important because mm -hmm. this model that used to be created of everyone working for free for audiences paying a five dollar ticket there was no money to pay anyone but it was wrong you know it, mm -hmm. and i'm glad that most theaters now are paying people something or have some sort of structure to reward people for doing the work of not only giving the product to performing but bringing an audience so we established that model. That was important to me. The collective ideology of like, nobody's cooler than anybody else. And we also ran it as a collective and that like, I am the owner of BCC, but I have always shared the big decisions with the key staff. So currently that is Maya Hernan, Maya, Maya Sharma, Julian Hernandez, and I, we make decisions collectively with full transparency. And I right. learned from the annoyance that me trying to run it on my own or do what I thought was best is a recipe for disaster sometimes because I have blind spots. Yeah. Yeah, as we all do. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned something there about the uh, the idolizing that can happen and, and clicks forming. And obviously people are going to people when you get a group together. And a lot of people have complained about the clicky nature of a UCB and that like hierarchy of thing, things that got kind of gross there. How do you try to combat that? Well, one is... Our core philosophy that we teach. And when we teach, even we have a no guru policy. Mm. I've taught improv almost 20 years now, and I'm here to give you what I feel works for me in our curriculum as strongly as possible. But you are allowed to be skeptical, ultimately, learn from as many good teachers as you can, and form your own point of view. Mm -hmm. With that said, our point of view is fuck it, love it. Mm -hmm. Fuck it, love it. It's sort of like a yin yang of like half of what we teach is just saying fuck it. Very annoyance inspired of like, this is improv is the stupidest fucking thing you ever do. It doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> Same thing with like comedy, like the more importance you put on it, like this audition has to go perfectly or I just need to right. take classes to one day get into this pyramid scheme of how schemes like, you know, it's like I fuck it. It doesn't matter. And the, and mm -hmm. the more fun and dumb and loose you are about it, then it actually brings your your joy to life. And and so we teach the fuck it. But if we only taught people to, to say fuck it, there might have been some of that like toxic behavior of people being like assholes to each other that I wanted yeah. to avoid. So then a big part of it was love it, which is this idea of like once you get over your fears or your need for it to be perfect, then you can remind yourself that you love your teammates. You love what you add, that you want to be em empathetic and, and that you want to treat people like the way you want to be treated. And you remind yourself what got you into this. We also don't want you just to love improv because then, honey, you might be that girl on Reddit backslash improv writing up improv theories every day of the week, going to only eat, sleep, drink, improv. Your whole cult is improv. And then you have no life. And yeah. then anytime something doesn't go well for you on your improv career, your comedy career, well, then you're fucked. Yeah. So 
Fuck it, love it is the vibe of BCC, which applies to our improv training, but also our stand-up, our sketch, our musical improv, the variety shows. We do plays, we do musicals. This whole thing, this this vibe is really important. And as we finally, I think, broken out in the last year after lockdowns, like we have a two-floor theater, we have two training centers next to it. The right. kids are calling it all Chuckles Square. <laughs> <laughs> You know, keeping that vibe of fuck it, love it is really important to us as we get bigger. Uh, one thing I think is cool is that you have this space and it's great stuff going on. I mean, I met, went to a show there and um, Connor O'Malley walked out and I was like, oh, hey, I love your work. <laughs> you know, like, like yeah. there are a lot of great people coming in and out of there. And it's in New York where when people think New York improv, let's say before the pandemic, they were thinking UCB, Pitt, Magnet, yeah, yeah. but you know, people were like, there are three other theaters, there's Brooklyn Comedy Collective, there's the Asylum, there's what's going on at the Tank, you know, like they're different theaters here than just those three. And now like UCB is, I, I guess, coming back and there's also going to be Second City in Brooklyn, but you're still operating. You're still doing your thing. You're still doing good work. You're still growing and building. So how do you move forward? How do you address this improv ecosystem of New York City that a lot of people kind of focus around those big three theaters? Well, I mean, I think that the one thing blinders on that you can always do is just do what you love and make it as strong and beautiful to you as possible. And if people are attracted to it, they'll come. They'll find, you know, everyone can find their home wherever they want. Right. I also try not to have a scarcity mindset of like, there's room for everybody. There's tons Absolutely. of people that want to do this. So I like to think of these other theaters, like one thing that is fun to me about Second City and the new UCB is we're all off the L train. Everybody mm -hmm. in Chicago, the theaters all get along really well. I'm mm -hmm. like, I want us to get along. I want to literally rebrand it as the, the Lowell train. You know, take the lull train to any of these theaters. And um, we're just going to keep, you know, shining our little lamppost light of freakiness and weird underground Brooklyn comedy and doing our 24 shows a week here. And, 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 and everyone else can shine too. So how people find us or when they, you know, where they seek the train, like, I just want to empower people to do their own research and to find the vibe that fits you, which doesn't yeah. have to be us, you know, it could be anyone. That's great. And I totally agree. Anytime any improv gets big here it's good for all improv here because it's going to make people seek out more and yeah. when they go seek out more they're going to find out about the theaters that they did not know about it's a rising tide and it'll raise all ships yeah and something i want to say so fun and dumb because dcm wasn't happening we're pretty sure fun and dumb was the biggest improv festival in the world last july in the world yeah, we had 600 performers, Oh wow! over 130 shows, thousands of audience members. The vibe was insane. It was like college campus. We're just, and there were people from all the theaters. You know, we had Rat Scraps with Shannon O'Neill. We had right. Baby One's Candy. We had Michael Hartney's Gay by Play, you know, and We Will Slay with Lou. It was just, it was Lou Gonzalez. There were, and there were teams from the Magnet. And it was just a smorgasbord. It was like, we all, you know, great improv to us looks the same. You know, yeah, we got Chris Gethard opening here and then we got BCC grads just on the stage downstairs like that big melting pot was important to us. And mm -hmm. so I think Fun and Dumb put us on the map in in producing this huge thing and bringing our the BCC to a lot of people that maybe hadn't heard about it. But I hope it also put everyone on the map of like we all can play together and it doesn't have to be siloed. Yeah. And the like judgment that can happen sometimes when people see another theater style, it's sort of like. I've said it a million times on this podcast and off, but I, I always sort of laugh and roll my eyes when people of one school of thought act like their school of thought is the only one. And it's like, well, how are there all these theaters staying open? Also, what a hill to die on your school of thought about make-believe. <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. You really die on that hill, honey. Tell me, <laughs> tell me how your dreams are. Look, mediocre improv at different theaters can look wildly different because people are trying yeah. to do what they think that theater style is mm -hmm. or they're learning and they're trying to find their own way and they're not there yet. Great mm -hmm. improv looks the same. Yeah. <laughs> it's surprising. It's yeah. believable. Yeah, That's it. It's surprising and it's relatable. That's yeah. all great improv looks the fucking same. That's such a perfect way to put it because the school of thought isn't about, well, this is the one way to do it. It is, this is what makes my brain work 
to do this and and to get to that place that you described like the the way this person described how to do an improv scene and do make believe that got me to figure out how to be relatable how to be sincere how to be open and vulnerable on stage so if it works for that person how could we possibly debate it goes back to like how can you debate vulnerability if a person's doing it because they figured out how to do it at the annoyance then guess what it works yeah everyone everyone's just finding their own path and another thing yeah. is there is no right or wrong there is only weak or strong and that is you know i don't we try not to teach with rules at bcc we say suggestions because Every rule can be broken. And really, you building your muscles in where, wherever you learn with whomever teachers, like that's what you really are eventually working toward. Um, and I think it's great that theaters have different styles, you know? So people can be inspired multiple different ways. Like there are some stand up shows that are in Manhattan and then come to Brooklyn and do our thing. And they like are like, wow, the crowd's so weird. And it's like, girl, you're just on a different vibe. This is, we're much more alternative than you're going to see at, you know, New York Comedy Club or something. And, <laughs> and that's a good thing that they're different. Yeah. That's one of the things that's so great about New York, right? Is that you can go to a different neighborhood and it has a completely different vibe. And yet still great stuff is going on that you can experience. And you can just go to another neighborhood and experience something else that's brilliant that just feels completely different like you're in another place in time but you, all you did was walk down the street like that's that's dope best city in the world for that reason that exact reason yep i want that for the improv scene here and i i want that for people to say like oh i feel this kind of vibe today let me go to bcc i'm feeling this kind of vibe i'm gonna go to magnet feeling this yeah. kind of vibe i'm gonna go check out some stuff at the pit I mean, maybe you should build a website called Improv Vibe Check where people say, what do they want? Zany, <laughs> zany and cuckoo. Ooh, BCC, <laughs> typically. Oh, but patient Chicago grounded, maybe magnet. I don't know. <laughs> it's just stereotype the theaters. Mind-blowingly structured and callback-y. Like you can't believe the sum was more than the whole departs. UCB, you know, like I don't know. Yeah, maybe it know. should be like a calendar of Improv all Improv Vibe Check. Right. <laughs> maybe that did we just create something accidentally <laughs> i mean i think it's a fun idea i also think it's totally stereotypical it's all this thing right. you get any theater but um i think what you said about empowering people just to find their own home and, and to have many homes and not silo themselves in one cult honey that's everything i love that let's yeah. create something together for real for real i am curious to how you approach improv so if we, maybe we could do a scene. Sure. Okay, cool. Should we do a scene, then talk about it improv nerd style, or should we talk and then do a scene? Up to you. Let's do improv nerd style. Let's just do a scene. What kind of suggestion do you tend to like to get? When was the last time you felt emotionally brave? Oh, <laughs> in therapy? Great. So that's our, that's our suggestion in therapy. That's our suggestion, yeah. Okay, cool. Michael, Michael, oh, you're back hurting. No, no, no. I'm, it's actually feeling great. Uh, you know, was, I was going, oh, I can't believe it. You know? Okay. Well, as long as that's honest, you know, it looked like you were uh, squeezing very tightly. You don't have to, you know, you can say anything in this session. This is just between you and me and, you know, I, physical pain, <laughs> mental pain, whatever. I'll be honest with you. I am so unaccustomed to sharing something. And it being such a release that I, it also makes me retract a little bit. Well, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, you were raised by wolves. Yeah. You have a fight or flight, a very strong fight or flight. You know, I'm, I'm grateful that I, I, I was put to, with you to work with you. This is a, a huge deal for me to finally have, you know, it's like a real life jungle book. I don't know. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I'm sorry. I'm wincing. You just smiled and it revealed your canine teeth, which just is a trigger for me because <laughs> the other wolves then they growled their teeth showed and they would be like stay away from that bone it's mine <laughs> yeah yeah tell me more tell me more and i'll keep my teeth closed thank you so basically when after a hunt when we got food there was a a, a sort of i guess a totem pole of who could eat first and if, you, if i started to 
stick my hand in there, that's when the, the, the claws and the teeth would come out. And I would just have to sit and wait my turn. And I never really knew what it was when it was my actual turn. I just had to keep reaching until they stopped growling. A lot of times I was just licking a, a meatless bone. Sorry. For sustenance. That, yeah. You know, not only a language barrier where you couldn't express your willingness to be a part of the pack, mm-hmm. but a nonverbal fear of just, wow, I am, I am not the apex predator that I should be, right? right. It, it, you know, we, wolves, wolves are dogs now. To most people and those dogs are our servants in some respects and yet you were put in a position where you were the dog mm-hmm. to the wolf you were their bitch or i'm sorry if i i, I, I should have cleared what language was appropriate i hope calling uh, you a bitch in, in a metaphorical way is no, appropriate in the session okay thank uh, you i that's a term that I grew to understand differently because it's, it's just like my mom, you know what I mean? But uh, of course, of course, of course. Yes. Well, now you've reintegrated. What was the last memory you had leaving your path behind before you were rescued by that traveling circus? Oh yes. They just didn't seem to understand, you know, but I told them, I believe this is my, my ticket to getting on a house team at a improv theater. And where did the genesis of the seed of that idea come from? A house team on an improv theater when this was you, until you met that traveling circus, you'd never even seen people make things up. Right. Well, so there was a girl I met who was a part of the circus before. And she you, was a, you recognized it was a girl a, a fellow human, even though I'd, you'd never I'd, seen. I know now that she was a girl at the time. I didn't know. I didn't realize. I knew that she was a lot less hairier than my family, but I had not seen myself before. So I didn't know she was like me. And I, it wasn't until later when I learned language, thanks to Janessa, that she is a girl, a human like me. And Janessa, she showed me a, DVD. It was Ass Cat. Mm. And I thought, this, this is what I should be doing. I tried to do it with the other wolves and they didn't get it. The wolves were not good at how would you describe this term? Uh, yes, onding? Yes, ending. Yes, onding. Yes, yes. Okay. That's it. Exactly. Janessa explained it a little bit to me and I didn't fully understand, but the more she started showing me and teaching me about this city called New York, (laughs) I thought I have to get there. Then I found out she was in the circus. Then I saw what they were doing again, amazed like I was when I saw ass cat. Yes. And I mean, if the tabloids are correct, I mean, I'm, I'm, finally getting in touch with you as a therapist many years later, but you became the central cat in that ass. Yes. Which is a huge transition from canines to cats. Yeah. But um, I'd like to, if it's all right with you, ask, you're coming in today for emotional support. And there's a lot of reasons that anyone would seek therapy, but I'm curious if you're coming in because of your past or because of your present. It's very much trying to get on a house team. That I see. Okay. <laughs> I had to call it there. Yeah. That's fun. <laughs> yeah, I, that, I was trying to lead, <laughs> lead to it. That was too uh, good an edit, so I had to. <laughs> I had to call it. <laughs> well, thanks for setting it up. So let's talk like with your approach with that. Uh, it seems like you are very grounded, but also like grounded in in energy, but willing to go any sort of wild place that a that a scene can go is, is that fair? yeah well that's fair and i'll relate it to that believability surprise thing okay so the believability of a scene is what we wanted to establish up top for me i was playing very grounded but i was not myself i was a therapist who 
And this is what the annoyance refers to ha having a deal, which we still teach at BCC of having an emotional point of view, which is mm. I deeply invested in this person. I might be a little bit overly conceptual and uh, trying to tie the dots. This case is very important to me. Eventually, we would have probably found a deep well of insecurity and I need to fix you. <laughs> and so this is all appointed. It's like rose colored glasses. It's like how I see you. And you came in with your own deal, which again was grounded. And then once we set up the believability, you know, 45 seconds into the scene, we did what's called, I, I did a curveball, which is by being specific, unusually specific, I guess UCB might maybe call it inventing a game. <laughs> I don't know if it was there up top, but I just was like, I want to fuck with this. Like we feel like <laughs> we're on a pretty predictable path and we've laid the groundwork. So now what if I fucked with it? And it's, I don't know where the race, my wolf things, we'd have to play the tape back, but it just came <laughs> out of my cuckoo brain and then we grounded that and caught that curveball and then we tried to be as specific as possible i kept trying to again not only be specific but make it important to your character some specifics that i remember us talking about were like comparing wolves to dogs to how you're the bitch to the wolves again making it an emotional deal driven specific that heightened your character but also was surprising Specifics being the key to being both more of a character, more believable, and specifics being the key to being more surprising. And then occasionally fucking with it a little bit more. Like the the other curveball I threw out was the uh, circus. You were found by a circus. I don't know why. And the curveball you threw out was that he wanted to learn fucking improv. <laughs> right, yeah. I love that. I love that concept of throwing a curveball because it's a little, it's comedy. It's mischievous by nature. You know, there should be some, some mischief in comedy. And I think throwing that curveball in there creates that opportunity. You mentioned catching the curveball was grounding that thing, but it does, but it stayed true to it. It it made it a part of the reality. But we didn't drop our things. You kept the same tone. I kept the same tone. We didn't treat it like too light. You know, like we made it make sense, essentially. Yeah, we made it meaty. We made it an important part of the scene. And it's like, again, this thing of believable, surprising are like two scales, right? So if I just fucked with it, then mm -hmm. I want to make it believable that that curveball really is a real thing. If a scene is believable, but not surprising, it's boring. If a scene is surprising, but not believable, it's chaotic. Right. So rather than focusing on game, we don't really teach game at BCC. We're like more of an inside out of like, how does it feel in my gut? Does the scene feel a little stale and I want to fuck with it a little? Or is it getting a little fucky, fucky, cuckoo, cuckoo? <laughs> and I want to really ground it and not have my characters be thrown by the curveball, but if anything, be more committed to their deal, to how they feel so that their character emotionally heightens from the fucky, fucky. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because it's, I think we are both being true to the world and true to our characters the entire time by not dropping our, our deal. It's like, we've got these different plates. Let's keep them all spinning, keep them up in the air. And one of those plates is grounding this reality and not dropping it. And I feel like the fact that we were both still being true to who we are and to our situation If I was going to you for therapy. It didn't matter what the curveballs were because we were just going to bring that into the realness of the scene and not discount it, but not be too tongue in cheek about it either. Yeah. I mean, I will say there's room for both. Like there's room for cuckoo, luku, tongue in cheek, or just wacky, dacky improv. And yeah. I want that in a show as much as I want something grounded that's still surprising. We have an exercise we teach in BCC where everyone does a dramatic scene. And they try to remember it and then they recreate the scene. They repeat it. Something that has like some emotion. It's not played for laughs. And then they repeat it. But I change as a teacher or teachers change one element. So like do the scene again. But this time you're both beavers. And as you speak, you're going to beaverize all the specifics. But you're going to play it just as emotionally real. Uh -huh. Or, you know, instead of like, you know, making dinner, you're running from the apocalypse. But like everything is played <laughs> legit. So yeah. it teaches that like. The cuckoo, we need both surprise and believability. Right. And sometimes I can have a very, very believable emotional scene and I can have people just being crazy town for a certain amount of time. And I love that too. I want it all. Yeah. I, you know, like uh, I love TJ and Dave. That's maybe my favorite approach to improv. But at the same time, I love the goofy stuff Metal Boy does that 
the magnet, you know, when they, when they perform or middle ditch and Schwartz is kooky, you know, like they go going all yeah. over the place. They're self-referential, they're breaking, you know, but I love it. Like Ben Schwartz is one of my favorite improvisers as is Dave Pasquese, you know what I mean? And they're, they're different, <laughs> but they're yeah. both great. You know, BCC, yeah. like uh, Chris Gathard and Tammy Sagar, two of the, my favorite yeah. improvisers have a monthly with us. And it's a perfect showcase of Cuckoo, but still patient and totally believable. I always personally go to that, like to go to that show to be schooled and reminded of like, wow, look at these veterans. Look at how they do it. Yeah. Well, I love it. And thanks so much for being on. There it is. Thanks, Jason. This was so lovely and fun to do a scene with you and to ch ch chat about like the intricacies. Yeah, I just would end by saying everyone, fuck it. I love it. Fuck any sort of thing you need to do in this comedy scene or any external pressure. It's all kind of a hoax anyway. And love it in that this is one of the most wonderful things. Improv couldn't matter less. And it's one of the most wonderful things on earth. So when we don't treat it too seriously, she is a beautiful thing. I love that sentiment. I take improv seriously, but because it's beautiful, I don't want to take it too seriously. Look up Philip Sparkle on Spotify to listen to his musical comedy. Go to brooklyncomedy.com to check out shows and classes at Brooklyn Comedy Collective. Their fall classes in improv, sketch, stand-up, clowning, and more start next week. To keep up with Philip, follow at Philip Sparkle on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Follow at Comedy Brooklyn on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter to keep up with BCC. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at There It Is Pod and subscribe to our YouTube channel at There It Is. Follow me on Twitter at Jason Far Jokes and Instagram at Jason Far Picks and TikTok at Jason Far Talks. Also, subscribe to our Comedy Lifestyle newsletter and support us if you can. We have a Patreon and a PayPal. Go to thereitispod.com for newsletter and support info. Links in bio. Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr. Jason Farr.